When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You are listening to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 39. The podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits and by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand with Onyx Maps. Download the Hunt app today in the iTunes or Google Play Store. And a new partner on the Project Upland podcast. Not completely new to faithful podcast listeners. You've heard me talk about them at length before. But Gumleaf Boots is now an official, fully backing partner of the Project Upland podcast. Apparently I talked about them enough that people started to go and actually buy gum leaf boots, which I'm very happy to hear because they are fantastic, phenomenal boots. I love mine. I look for excuses to wear them. If you're looking for the best in handcrafted quality rubber boots, you have to check out gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PU2018 for free shipping from gumleafusa.com. Check out a pair of boots. Season's right around the corner. Thank you to the listeners for supporting Gumleaf, and thank you to Gumleaf USA for supporting the Project Upland podcast. This week's winner of 
the Project Upland Podcast giveaway is Ben Peppernick. Thank you, Ben. He shared our most recent podcast episode on Facebook. We appreciate the support, Ben. Project Upland hat or t-shirt on its way to you shortly. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by leaving us a review, leaving us a rating, subscribing to the podcast, sharing the podcast post, giving us some feedback, support the show in any or all of those ways, and we choose a weekly winner. It could be you. On today's show, we have an excellent guest, especially with the hunting season right around the corner. His name is Doug Stewart, and Doug recently released a book that he authored titled The Traditional Side-by-Side, King of the Upland Bird Guns. Now, don't do it. I know there may be many of you out there rolling your eyes, thinking, all right, Nick, you're on here every week talking about side-by-sides. We get it already. I know that, and I know that side-by-sides are not everybody's jam, and that's okay. I knew that going into this interview, I really enjoyed Doug's book. I read it. He sent me a copy of it. It was very good, but I knew that I wanted to get more out of this interview, so I just honestly listened back to it, editing the podcast, and 80 to 90% of our conversation applies to no matter what gun you carry. We talked a ton about shotgun gauges, the types of loads you should be shooting out of your particular gauge. We talked about gun fit. We talked about wing shooting, instinctive technique. We talked about a lot of that stuff. And like I said, much of what we talked about does not specifically apply to a side-by-side shotgun. That said, Doug is a fanatical side-by-side shotgun lover. And that is obvious in our interview today. He wrote a great book. We had an awesome conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. So without further ado, let's welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Doug Stewart. All right, Doug, here we go, man. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. That's awesome to hear. And we are happy to have you on the show. I thank you for being with us. Doug, we got a lot of chat. We got a lot to chat about this evening, mainly topic of side-by-side shotguns. So I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, we'll get a little, we got to get a little background and a little history on you. We'd love to share people's upland hunting story and how they got into it. So we'll ask you a few questions like that. But to start, Let's put Doug Stewart on the map and tell us where you call home base, Doug, and, and where you do the bulk of your hunting. Well, I'm uh, from Loveland, Colorado, and I am a native from Colorado. I was born in Fort Collins, and um, I'm a personal fitness trainer for a living, me and my wife are. And, um, you know, I've been bird hunting for the last 40 years, and you'll be able to tell from my book, I'm definitely a side-by-side enthusiast and you know i hunt just upland birds period um, in north america and i love to hunt all of them any state i can get to and i don't know it's just very special to me to do it in a very traditional way the way our forefathers did and i do want to let everybody know in my book there's a few little grammar errors that have been corrected but 
I don't want it to uh, mislead anybody because I am definitely a shotgun guru as the fact of, I guess, why everybody else was going to school. I was out hunting. Uh-huh. And I was, you know, taking guns apart when other kids were playing with building blocks. But I'm just a, a family man. I have a very strong belief in God. You know, I love my wife and my family. Um, I hunt with my wife, as you'll see in the book, and with my wife and a little Llewellyn Setter. And um, I guess I'm just a very nostalgic person in general, and that might have a lot to do with my taste for the side-by-side shotgun. And um, I really personally believe it is the best shotgun for the uplands. And um, I really felt there was a need to write a book on them. There hasn't been a book come out on side-by-side shotguns for a very long time. And uh, I wanted to write a book that I wished I would have had in the beginning that literally covers how to get a gun to fit you, how to shoot instinctively, uh, about cartridges, about the chokes. Um, You know, really important about the balance of the gun and why side-by-sides are really so great and how they are advantageous, okay? And, um, you know, of course, you know, I loved reading Michael McIntosh's books and Gene Hill's books, um, Richard Krozak, um, Churchill, of course, Thomas Goff. I've got them all. I've got all these books. I've had tons of shooting instructions and gun fittings, and I'm just, you know, a lot of people could say I'm obsessed. <laughs> yeah, so, they might so say that, Doug. <laughs> call and asking me questions. That I was buying guns from, as you see my collection, the whole book's nothing but my collection of guns and my birds that I shot. And they started telling me, you need to write a book. You know, you know more than I do. And they started calling me, asking me questions. So I eventually led to me writing a book, basically. Doug, you're going to answer all my questions. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good, man. It's all good, man. I love it. That's great background. And you raise a ton of points. And I've got a I've got notes written down here next to me and you and I chatted about some other things that I want to talk about. And like I said, we're not going to get to it all. So we will cover what we can. And uh, if need be, we'll have you back. But let's I'm going to rewind a little bit because you said a lot of cool things there. Number one, just given the given the time of year and and, uh, we got we got hunting seasons coming right around the corner. I'm excited. I know you are excited. You're a personal trainer, and I, I did catch that because you did an interview recently with my buddy Tyler Webster. You were on his podcast. Great interview, by the way. I loved it and uh, really got me excited to talk to you. But personal trainer, what's your favorite way to uh, stay in shape? I imagine you uh, you stay in the stay in the gym quite a bit. You're out in Colorado, so maybe a little bit of elevation. You probably keep keep pretty healthy. But how do you like to keep those legs in shape for the uplands? Well, it's, it's funny you ask that because I've got a website, you know, DougStewartAuthor.com. And I think it's very important. And I literally have on there some tips on getting in shape for hunting season. You need to do a lot of cardio. And me and my wife, obviously, with the Llewellyn Center, have to walk the dog every day. Yep. And I do suggest, uh, you know, a stair climber in there and a great diet. I mean, you, you need to get rid of any extra body weight. You don't want to be lugging it around in the uplands, as you well know. It's hard on your knees. It's hard on your hips and your back. It's, you get rid of the extra garbage on your body. Yeah. And, um, you know, I used to be a competitive bodybuilder, and I'm retired from all that now. So I've tried to reduce my body mass and just be lean and fit because we hunt hard. I mean, me and my wife... When we go to New Mexico, obviously chasing quail, we've clocked it at our mileage, and we're at least 12 miles a day. 
and we like to hunt several days in a row. Yeah. And you're talking, you know, with your boots and gun belt and gun and all your supplies for the dog. You got to be in shape or you don't even enjoy the trip. For sure. Um, so you've got to do your cardio and you've got to be physically fit before you even think about marching around in the uplands, period. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. And you got to be the first personal trainer we've had on the podcast. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, I figured I figured I'd bend your ear a little bit on that topic because I've been I've been doing a lot of biking lately, actually, which is not something that I typically do. But I, I kind of forgot how much fun uh, mountain biking was. And I've got some great trails here. So I've been doing a lot of that, keeping the legs in shape. And yeah, it's it's a it's a really fun way to get out in the woods and get some exercise. But let's hope all the listeners are are listening to that advice and and they're all working on getting in shape and, and getting excited. It's uh you know, you got to earn a few of those beers too. I like to have a I like to have a I like to have a beer or two after a hunt. So it's it's good to earn those. All right, let's you know, you, you talk about this love of side-by-sides and I think I'm I'm kind of a a different story than you in that side-by-sides came into the picture. You know, people hear me talk about them on this podcast a lot, but it's really a new thing for me. I haven't, it wasn't two years ago when I didn't think I would ever carry a side-by-side because I just, I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand them. And now I'm kind of completely flipped on that. So I reserve the right to change my mind, I guess. But, but where did it start for you? Well, I don't know if I had much of a chance because my first gun was a Savage Fox 410, um, which I got at 10 years old, and I, I had to shoot everything with it. Um, of course, I do not recommend you put a child the first gun on a 410 because 410 are cripplers, but my parents did, okay? Yeah. And I've always been attracted to them, and I've tried other guns, and other guns were always bulkier and heavier, and, and so I've always just naturally wanted to stay with side by side. And so then, of course, I told you I'm a nut about reading books and researching and all this. And, and of course, I found out that the over and under was the first double barrel gun made. Yeah. And the English chose to stay with the side by side, especially in the golden era of bird shooting. And they were the best of deaths. It was a way of life over there. I mean, one of the best reported, recorded game shots ever was Lord Ripon, of course. And he used a trio of Purdy's. And they were hammer guns. And so you really can't say they're inferior. It's just nowadays it is so much cheaper to make an over and under and to regulate it properly. They're everywhere. Makers are making them. You can go get them to the store everywhere. It's so much cheaper for an automatic and a pump. And we've heard all the arguments. Um, I think Browning was the first one to really push it when they said we have the you know single siding plane and all this stuff. And every gun only has one siding plane. All right, that's senseless. Okay, but. It does have a narrower one, and your peripheral vision isn't going to see the two barrels, which it's not supposed to anyway. You're supposed to focus it on the bird. But a lot of this has gotten into people's minds, and why not just go pick up a, you know, an over and under or something that's cheaper, the readily available, and shoot with it. Works great for everybody. So yeah, I really think that's why a lot of people haven't shot side by side because they're not available, they're expensive, you don't see them everywhere. And then they, when you do find one, it's probably from a very long time ago, and it's got too short of a stock and stuff because the average height man back then was way shorter than the average height man nowadays. Yeah. Right? I think that's a, a great way to put it. And, I mean, availability, yeah, they're just – they're not there. I mean, you look at whatever you want to look at, the whether it's a Cabela's catalog. I mean, they have some guns in there. You go to the store. You go to the gun store. I mean, you're going to see semi-autos, pumps – 
over-unders, a lot, lot, lot more of those than you see side-by-sides. And it's, I think it's something that you really have to seek out. And I mean, you get, you can get pretty deep into the world of rough grouse, woodcock hunting and upland hunting. I mean, you can get pretty deep into that world before you even get exposed to side-by-sides because they are, they're on the outskirts. They are a, a real niche, but when you do get into that world and you start to peel back the layers, I mean, for somebody that is nostalgic, like yourself, like myself, the history, the nostalgia, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I think that's why they do have such a cult falling within the people that, that are interested in side-by-sides. Well, you, you tell me it's an art and a science. Okay. And I cover it in the last chapter of my book and I go over my Parker that was made 1904 and it matches the letter perfect. And it, it means so much to me the way it was made. Okay. And this gun's been used since 1904. Can you imagine how many birds it's killed? And it's got some character to it. And it was originally shipped to the gentleman in Pennsylvania. And I've put all these special bird hunts on it. This gun can talk. Now, to me, the whole experience of hunting needs to be special nowadays. And so I take this special gun, and we go to a special place and take pictures. And we're doing a tradition that our forefathers did that are so special in this country. So the whole experience as a whole means more to me than going down to the sporting goods store, buying a cheap pump that doesn't even have a real wood stock, that was completely machine made, one size fits all, and taking it out on a special hunt like that. Yeah. That's the whole thing that you're explaining that some of us get, okay? Um, that everything makes it more special. The hunt, the gun's one of the things. Um, of course, I think they're superior and have an automatic, you know, choke selection. You know, the shell receivers, so your hands are in the same plane. The guns are lighter, they're better balanced. They work better with your reflexes. They're quicker. So, yes, I think that there's true merit to them, too. Yeah. But nostalgia also. Yeah, I think that's well put. And one of the things I think it's interesting because we do talk about nostalgia and history. And I guess maybe it doesn't ring true for everybody. But for me, for some reason, I have this recurring thought when I'm spending time in, in the woods. And it doesn't have to be hunting. I mean, it could be I could be out for a hike. It's usually got to be hunting or fishing or something, though. And I, you know, say I shoot a bird or I kill a deer or I catch a fish and I have this recurring thought that, you know, this bird grew up in these woods and, you know, maybe it lived here for a couple of years, but these birds have been living in this place, in this habitat unchanged for such a long time. And just, I don't know, that just strikes me in a way that I imagine it is similar for a lot of other hunters, just the, that constant thread where the world has changed around that bird cover and around those birds, but those birds are still there. That constant thread through time interests me. And so then you throw the gun in, into the mix and you, you know, I, my, the side-by-side that I carry was made in 1934 or 35. And so it's that long time. Again, the world has changed around that gun, but here's that gun still exists today. And now I'm carrying it through the woods. Yeah. I'm a sucker for that, I guess. Well, you get it, Nick. And, and yeah, I'm not a killer anymore. Okay. You know, I'm 50 years old and I've killed so many birds. It's ridiculous. I'm a hunter now. Sure. So I see more of the beautiful scenery and leaves out there and the beautiful animals and 
And the whole experience to me is a very religious experience. And I don't even care if I get birds anymore. And I even cut back on shooting so many. So why would I take this beautiful experience and hunt with anything besides a beautiful gun that was made just for that purpose? Okay, my makers that made these guns, they made it for that bird hunt. It's choked for them. It's balanced for them. They, the makers intended for hunting these upland birds. If I go pull a gun off the shelf nowadays that is just totally machine-made, they made it for everybody, it's made to hunt geese, ducks, shoot clay pigeons, maybe occasional pheasant, a utility gun, period. So that doesn't mean as much to me, period. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, Doug. It does. And I think this is really interesting conversation, and I want to take it – I want to take it – in a more direct way to the book now, because we, you touched on some of the reasons and the inspirations and why, why you wrote the book. And I have read it. You were very kind and sent me a copy of it and I read it and I very much enjoyed it. And I think that it is a really unique book in that it does cover, it's a, it's down to the nuts and bolts and it talks about, you know, if you were starting from scratch and you know very little about side-by-sides, this is an awesome book for you. That said, I think there's something for everybody in it. Like you mentioned, there's stuff that the guys that have been carrying side-by-sides for a long time, I mean, they're going to pull something out of this book. But this is a really, really good book, I think, for somebody just starting out because you start from square one and I thought you walk through things in a really nice way. So let's kind of start there. I jotted down a few things as the book went through that I want to cover. And I think early on in the book, you start very simply and you talk about the different gauges. And now obviously the gauge is not specific to the side-by-side, but walk us through the, the common gauges, 4, 10, 20, 16, 12, and just give us the high level that you talked about in the book. Cause I thought it was really interesting. Well, yeah, I thought that was important because, um, yes, the 12 gauge is super versatile. You could probably shoot everything with it. Okay. But then there's the people that come up and say, Hey, you know, um, most of my 12 gauges are too heavy. Mm -hmm. And when I go walk the prairies in Montana, my arms will wear out. I'm not fast with the gun anymore. I don't like carrying it with one hand apart and brush with the other one. I'm slow. And you don't need a dense pattern with the 12 gauge shoots at shooting at a woodcock or grouse at 15 yards. Okay. So that's where it's important to say, Hey, you know, this is where, you know, 16 gauge is phenomenal and the benefits, you know, here's the benefits of a 20 gauge. As you'll read the book, I love 28 gauges. And I even discussed a 410 because a lot of people start with a 410 and how to properly use one if you're going to, um, because they are cripplers. And so that's why I talked about the, you know, like a 16 gauge, how they used to be the queen of the uplands. Yeah. Because you could buy, you can get a 16 gauge that is so light as you're talking about your fox. Well, a 16 gauge fox is built on a 20 gauge frame. So you can get a very light gun but yet have a beautiful pattern of a 16 gauge because there's a correlation between a 662 bore and a one ounce shot. It's a square load, has a very short shot strength. So it has beautiful patterns and is absolutely deadly, but yet you don't get much recoil. You get your nice light gun. That's probably one of the best upland guns all around there is. The same thing with a 28 gauge, a 550 bore and a three quarter ounce of shot is a perfect square load and produces a super short shot strength, which is very deadly. Um, you know, within 35 yards, because past that you're losing pattern density because it's three-quarter ounce of shot, but that's all you need on those birds. Yeah. But yeah, you got this light little gun that you can handle and your arms are aching you and they're gorgeous and they fit and feel good in your hands. So I went through the different gauges and told why there's different gauges and, and where they're valuable and usable, how to 
tell if you got a proper frame on a 28 gauge. I even talked about the two inch 12 bore, which was an English invention, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I jotted down the two inch 12 bore, and I I am going to ask you about that. <laughs> but we've got to. You threw a lot at us there, and I want to dissect. <laughs> I wanted to. It was Sorry. no, it was great, Doug. It was great. I asked the question, and you. you you give me more than more than I bargained for. So that's you're you're the perfect kind of guess. I love it, Doug. But I think you're talking about the square load. And I really wanted to bring this up because it's something that you talk about in the book. It's something that I'm becoming more and more familiar with, but I am not a ballistics guy. I I knew very little about loads and shots and patterning, and I haven't experimented with a lot of my a lot myself. And so I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume that there are other people out there like me that are not very familiar with loads and patterns and specifically the square load. And I'll give a shout out to Ron Bain because he had a shooting instructor on recently and they touched on this kind of, I think it was towards the end of the interview and he actually mentioned the square load and they talked about this stuff a little bit. And I think it's, and shot string too, which is a big one. But so that square load, we'll use the 16 gauge for an ex, for example, an ounce of shot. So just explain exactly what you mean by a square load. Okay, well, you know, you said a 16-gauge, okay? So we went over the diameter of the bore, okay, which is a 662 and a 16-gauge. So that's okay? that's the, yeah, diameter of the bore, okay? Yep, like a 12-gauge is a 729. Gotcha. So when you put an ounce of shot in it, okay, it, it, it means that it's a perfectly square load and how it fits in the bore. Correct. Okay. Now, if I went and put a one-and-a-quarter ounce load in that bore, it would no longer be square. It'd be because it's too large. So it would be this long load sitting in your chamber. And when you shoot it, immediately you're going to get a long shot string when you shoot it. And okay. and when you say long, I want, just want to make sure people understand this because I think it's really helpful to visualize it. When you say long, what you mean is, I think this, maybe even the guy said it on Ron's podcast, think of, or Ron said it, think of a hot dog going through yes. the air. So you've got a yep. hot dog going through the air as opposed to a short shot string, which would look yes. like... It would look like a pizza pan, pan being thrown at something. You shot arriving all at the same time. Exactly. Now, the problem with the long shot string is like, let's say, a really fast crossing shot. Only the front half of your shot string is going to hit it anyway. And the back half of the shot string is shedding velocity it's shedding energy. You start to get flyers on the fringe that cripple birds bad, okay? And it's been subjected to all this neat setback pressure in your shell when you shoot. So all the shot's damaged. It's not nice and round. doesn't fly good. So what happens is it's not adding to your pattern at all. It just added nicely to recoil. And these pellets are cripplers when they hit birds, okay? They're garbage. So makers of ammunition since the beginning have been trying to get sh small shot strings. And the right load for every gauge is, you know, I told you three-quarter ounce for 28-gauge, seven-eighths ounce shot for 20-gauge, one ounce shot for 16-gauge, and one and one-eighth load for 12-gauge. Yeah. And you find the larger the bore is, it's a little more forgiving with larger shot sizes. Sure. And overloading them. And that's why the 410 is just a nightmare. So in a nutshell, that's why you want a shorter shot string. And Americans are so bad about it because they just want more power. <laughs> yep. Bigger's better. The English don't do this. I mean, they've got light loads over there. And they worry more about high performance, quality shot, quality clean burning powders, the Americans want super high velocity, cram tons of shot in it, 
bigger is better. Yeah, because I think that that stuff sells, right, Doug? I mean, somebody goes to what's, you know, like I can actually speak to this from an uneducated, you know, in my past, not my not too distant past, my uneducated shotgun shell buyer. I'd go say I'd go to the store and I'd look at two 12 gauge shells and I look at the velocity. I look at the feet per second. And that was literally what I was looking at. You know, so I was duck hunting or whatever. I'm looking at the feet per second and whatever it is, maybe it's just me, but I have a, I have a feeling it's not just me. You think, oh, this is faster. It's going to get to the bird. It's going to hit them faster. It's going to, this is better. And that is, well, that is not necessarily the case. It's not the case. And where people are getting confused, I've been testing loads forever. When I was a kid, I started shooting telephone books for penetration. You know, uh, you wouldn't believe all the pattern. Okay, now I'm talking about lead. Because a sphere, the faster it starts, the quicker it slows down. It's not a bullet, okay? So lower velocity loads pattern way better. This I can tell you for a fact. And you're actually going to hit your bird harder. Now, the problem is, is the steel shot garbage is the pellets don't get deformed because it's such hard steel. Sure. And they lose their energy. So they've been cranking up the velocity on these darn things, which actually when people are shooting at, you know, 35, 40 yards, like they're supposed to be at a waterfowl, they're more effective. And it does reduce their lead on the bird and it doesn't damage a shot. And it's working for these duck hunters, but it will not work with lead. I can guarantee you that. And it is not advantageous at long range, even with steel. Okay. But for all our land gun hunting that I've done with lead all my life, you want a low-velocity load that has super hard shot in it, clean burning powders, and you want a beautiful pattern that's going to give you incredible multiple hits without big holes in the pattern. And the results are amazing. Yeah. Doug, is there any way to – is there any way for somebody to – test the length of the shot string you know because it's one of those things where you can look at your pattern and all the pellets could hit you know they're all going to hit the patterning plate and but it doesn't tell you when they arrived right so is is there any way to test that other than like slow motion cameras and the ammunition factories i mean how do they test that stuff oh they've got some different devices to test absolutely sure and they'll literally do it at 40 miles an hour. But we don't have all these right. gadgets. And I've got them in books and stuff, the gadgets they use, and it's awesome. I didn't have that as a kid, you know. Yeah. So what I would always do is I'd go out in a fresh layer of snow and put my guns on the ditch bank. And let's say I was patterning it at 30 yards, and I'd see how much of my shot hit the snow before it even made it to my target. I mean, that was one crazy way that I did it when I was a kid. Sure, okay. interesting. And it was amazing how some of the shot never even made it to the target, especially the further I got back. And now, of course, if you got expensive devices, there's tons of different ways that they can you can measure it. And an easy way, I suppose, would be, um, like I said, you can even set up a big board and shoot it more of a distance and see how much of your pattern's hitting below to. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole other subject, of course, too, because I like uh, myself, I've mentioned before, I like a 50-50 pattern or a 60-40. And meaning, meaning percentage of pellets above and below a certain line? Right, okay. exactly. And, of course, uh, most birds are rising, so the 60-40 is very popular. Okay. Um, a lot of driven bird shooters want to, as much of a 70-30 even, but I don't do that. I prefer a 60-40 or really a 50-50 because I do a lot of crossing shots. I shoot down here all at chucker, and you'll shoot right over the top of a chucker. So I prefer for all-around upland gunning 
a 50-50 pattern. Yeah. Awesome, Doug. Well, that's that's a lot of cool stuff. And like you said, we could go on and on about shot, but we got more topics to cover. But I think if listeners were going to take away something from that, it would be, you know, whatever you got, whether it's a 20 gauge, 12 gauge, 16 gauge, 28 gauge, pay attention to that load and do some research on the square load and make sure you're shooting the load that was intended. Yeah, I think there was a quote that I wrote down on page 22 of the book, and it was use the bore for its intended purpose and that's what you were that's what you were getting at is shoot the load that was designed to be shot out of that bore oh my friend michael mcintosh would roll over in his grave if he knew there was making a three inch magnum now for the 28 gauge which they are <laughs> yeah. these new benellis they're making okay and they're putting an ounce of shot down well actually i think it's an ounce of 16 okay yeah. and he's right it runs the magic of a 28 gauge don't try to make a small gauge do what it's not supposed to do all right you know if you want that longer range and you're wanting to shoot larger shot and you're needing more shot you've got to go up in your board yeah. period you know i mean if you're wanting to use that load why not use a 16 gauge don't try to cram it in that 28 gauge and get a long shot stream all of a sudden making that low recoil and beautiful gun recoil and you're going to get crippled bird yeah bottom bottom line great point we'll leave it at that doug all right let's transition a little bit let's talk about sort of the form fit feel and function of the side-by-side tell us what maybe from buttstock to tip of the barrels what makes an ideal side-by-side as far as fit function balance that sort of thing I um, go pretty extensively in my book. Yes, you do. On on gun fit, and it's actually in my section on stocks. Because mm-hmm. I talk about you know how you have a straight grip and a pistol grip and a Prince of Wales, yep. a different figure. We go through all this, and then I go into fit. And you know I even have a height gauge in there that's very approximate for your you know height and your length of pull. Yeah. And you really need to get a stock to fit you. So you got to read this section. I don't want to kill my book. It's important. But one of the things I don't think people understand is your gun needs to fit you as an individual. Okay. And I happen to be five foot eight. All right. I weigh 190 pounds. I'm pretty muscular. My arms are not long. And I like a 14 and a quarter inch length of pull in general. And now that I'm getting a little bit older, I actually shoot 14 inch length of pull even better. Um, especially with a pistol grip because I hug the gun a little bit more. Now with a straight grip stock, I'm back at my 14 and a quarter. And my barrel length, I usually like about 28-inch barrels, but now that I've gotten older, I'm shooting 26-inch barrels better. And the gun needs to fit unto itself, and it needs to fit the user. If I was a six foot two man and a big man, this gun would not work. I would overpower it. It'd be whippy. So I would need longer barrels and a longer stock. And I give a really funny story in my book about a little man that went on a pheasant hunt with us. And he's a little tiny guy. He must have been five foot four. And he had his stock cut off probably about right for him, probably about 13 and a half like full. And that dead gum thing had a 30-inch barrel on it. And it was a pump, no less, too, which makes it even longer. Oh, yeah, that is a long gun. And um, he was at odds with his gun in the entire hunt little guy so my point was is that gun needs to be symmetrical with itself but as a 13 and a half inch stock you know by god it should probably have a 25 or 26 inch barrel then the gun would fit unto itself and then it needs to fit the user 
Okay. Um, and I, I wish more people would take that into account because then they would have a smooth handling gun. And I, I believe in being fast, which is a lot of technique, but your gun needs to complement your physical stature. So that's another point I have with a store gun is one gun does not fit all. Good point. <laughs> little uh, little dog bark action there. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, my uh, you know, you mentioned you've got a Llewellyn setter. I've got a got an English setter, and he uh, he is the co-host on the podcast. He's always in the room here. So. Excellent, excellent. So yes, excellent input and advice on the guns. And again, I think it just goes to, you know, a lot of people wind up with a gun, maybe it was a gift or maybe it was inherited and and it's not always the bespoke gun is not necessarily available to everybody without a lot of time uh, and or money investment, but you want to be paying attention. The point is paying attention to how a gun fits you and how it fits unto itself. I like the way that you put that. What what would you suggest for someone that wants to wants to find out more about whether or not a particular gun fits them or what kind of gun fits them? Is it is it go get a professional fitter? I mean, is that what you would suggest, Doug? Well, I've had several. So I do think people that are really going to take up land bird hunting serious should have a professional fitting, okay? Um, I've had several of them, and I have my own views on it, and I don't agree with a lot of them. And what I mean by that is they're smart. They can get it fitting you great in the gun room. But then when you go to the field and you're not mounting it in their gun room with your T-shirt on or shooting clay pigeons, you start to have some trouble. So I say a gun fitting is very important to get you started with something that's very close to what you need. All right. And I did that route. And then I found out I needed a little shorter length of pull than they always gave me because I'm shooting faster. I cradle the gun more. I'm wearing more clothing. I can't get it mounted. And if I erred, I, I like to err just slightly on having my stock a little bit shorter than they give me at the gun fitting. Um, so these are the things I had to learn through all my years of experience. Sure. And I, I discuss that a lot in my book. And I, I really go far into it, explain it when the gun's mounted, you know, your your thumb should be about an inch and a quarter from your nose, and, and then you'll know you got the right length of pull, and, you know, there's all kinds of little tips like yeah. that. Yeah, I thought, I actually, I actually thought that in the book, I thought you did a cool job of providing, you know, there's always those little tidbits of wisdom, and kind of the, they're not scientific, but... Like you mentioned, the bar- the barrel length matching up to the stock length or, you know, length of pull matching up to a person's height. You know, those aren't scientific, but they're they're good gauges and they're good things for people to they're good things for people to do a quick eyeball test on a lot of stuff. And, and you do have you do have a lot of those tidbits in the book. And I thought that was that was good and helpful to people or it's where they can they can look at the guns that they have and say, you know what, this is not even close or, yeah, this is in the ballpark. And the problem like. Why I don't like to say too much. Because I've shot guns so much. You know, as you read my book, I own a lot of guns. Um, and I can look at somebody if they're in person. Because I can't just go by height. I kind of look at their arm length. And I can look at the build of their body. How big their chest is around their shoulders. If they've got a long neck. If their eyes are set far apart. All that. Okay? Because that has to do with your cast, of course. Yeah. 
And you'd be shocked how close I can tell them what gun they need to fit them. By looking at their body anatomy, and I'll pull one of my guns out or something and give it to one of my buddies, and they can't believe it. Yeah. Because I've done it so long. And so that's why I don't like to say too much, because if I got some that's five foot ten, they might have these super long monkey arms, and they might have a really long neck. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, they got really narrow set eyes. And I didn't know any of that. You know, over the phone, all I knew is there's five foot ten. Right. Yeah. So I did give a basic guideline in my book on height, where you should approximately be on your length of pole. And I gave some very approximate on the drop at the heel and the cone. And I even talked about, you know, cast off or cast on, which is super important. But I really have to see the person. If I do, I can guess it very close looking at a person. Yeah. I guess we'll kind of move off fit a little bit, but one of the things that I think is interesting that gets sort of brought up when you talk about, you know, you look at possibly getting getting a custom set of dimensions and restocking a gun and, you know, stock makers, they're going to write down dimensions or a gun fitter is going to write down a set of dimensions that are exact because you have to give a stock maker exact dimensions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those dimensions are the only ones that you can and should ever shoot. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm venturing to guess that, you know, you have a, you have a number of guns and you, you talk about them in, in your book and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that they haven't all been custom restocked or even, or even adjusted to fit you. You, and they're not all, and they're not all exactly the same measurement. So you can shoot guns with different measurements, right, Doug? Oh, absolutely. Um, I hate to say this. I don't want people to take me wrong, but I can adjust myself to almost any gun now. Okay. Sure. And even my CHE that's on the back of my book and pretty legendary gun has a very short stock. It's actually too short for me. It has a little too much drop. So I extend my left hand out, which makes the stock, you know, a little longer. And I can adjust myself to the gun a little because I know how to shoot. Yeah. And I think when you're an instinctive wing shooter and you can properly mount a gun, it's more important to be able to focus on that bird and be able to point, to be really good at pointing. And so, yes, you're correct. You know, all my guns are a little different. And I could pull one out and say, man, this would be great because I'm layered up today and my stock's a little short and the suck will be great. You know, I'm shooting chucker. The dead gun things love to run uphill and fly downhill. It's got too much drop in it. This will be perfect. You know, because then I won't shoot over the top of them. Then I can pull out another one of my guns, and I'm like, man, I'm dove hunting. It's hot as crap outside. I got a super straight long stock on this thing. Doesn't have much drop, but I got a lot of incoming birds, so I'll be shooting high. Well, it's perfect. So I do that crap, and that's another reason to own more guns, right? (laughs) (laughs) As if we needed another reason, Doug. Oh, yeah. You know, a funny story on kind of on that note. A mutual friend of ours, Jerry Havel, the owner of Pine Ridge Girls Camp, which we talked about a fair bit on this podcast. I was up at his camp last summer before the season. It was August. We were training dogs, and there was a bunch of us standing around, and we decided to shoot some clays. You know, everybody's excited for the season, and I had my – brand new to me fox sterling worth 16 gauge and i don't even i maybe i had shot it once at that point but i hadn't shot it a whole lot and i i pulled it out and it is it's got three three inches of drop you know on the factory wood it's got three inches of drop and i i think the length of pull might even be under 14 inches and i'm six feet tall you know i mean it's 
the guy that the guy that owned it before me is six three or four. I mean, he he was a big guy, and he he. But but again, he adjusted himself to it, and he shot it okay. But the point of the story is, I was maybe missing a few here and there, and 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 Jerry Havel grabbed it from me and said, "Hey, let me try it." I said, "Yep, here you go, Jerry." And he picked it up. And Jerry's not a small guy. He's he's taller than me. He's got to be six. Exactly. He's a big guy, so short stock, a lot of drop. And he probably dusted three or four clays in a row with it and just kind of turned to me and shrugged his shoulder and said, yeah, this is a nice gun. A lot of drop on it, but this is nice. You know, shoots where I point it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's that's, that's clear. That's it, my friend. When you're a stinky shooter, you can shoot almost any gun and you can shoot almost any bird in any situation. And that's why you've got to be and perfect being an extinctive wing shooter. You have to you have to shoot that way in the uplands. I'm convinced. And so is, you know, Michael McIntosh, one of the best shooters in history, Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley shot instinctively, which is also known as a Churchill method. Just you know, Annie Oakley didn't write a book on it. Yeah. You know, Churchill Churchill did. Yep. But so I I swear by it, and I really think young hunters need to learn to use that, and they're not getting taught that at the Clay's course. Yeah, specifically on the trap range. If you yeah. know, I'm not a big, tra- I'm not a big trap guy. I, I, to, uh, I just full disclosure here. I've never shot trap, and so I'm not one to say one way or the other. But I've heard from enough people that the way that trap is run today, in that with with guns pre mounted and yes, super high ribs and people essentially aiming down the barrels of these shotguns. It's it's right. a it's a different it's, it's just a different technique than what is taught for shooting in the uplands. You know, you said it so perfectly, uh, Nick, because I have people come out that are trap shooters all the time, and they can't shoot nothing for birds in the field. And, and they tell me, man, where do you shoot? I'm like, I practice in my bedroom. Um, it's funny because a clay pigeon starts out fast and gets slower, slower, slower. And these nice trap just keep going straight out away from you. And you're correct. You can actually start aiming and making perceived leads on these birds yeah. and hitting them consistently. And that is absolutely the worst thing you can do and with a pre-mounted gun. You're not going to be able to do that in the field. You head out there after a bird, that bird's the opposite. It jumps up slow and gets faster, faster, faster. And they're all different sizes and shapes. They're flying at different speeds, different angles, and your gun's not pre-mounted. And so side-by-side, one of the most it's the best for shooting instinctively when you're holding it at your waist, you know? <clears throat> so you really hit on it. It's night and day different. Yeah. Well, we've, we've definitely segued into shooting. And so I'll ask you a few more questions on this, but I did interview, uh, and, I, and I mentioned this to you before we started talking tonight, but uh, I did interview a shooting instructor, Keith Coyle, and I don't recall the specific episode, but if listeners haven't listened to that, they want to go back and, and learn a lot about shooting and specifically the Churchill method, because that's what he teaches. And it is, you know, essentially this instinctive wing shooting method. Uh, yes. That's, that would be a great thing to listen to. And, and you've talked a lot about it here. What, for the sake of this episode, give us the basics on the instinctive wing shooting method. Cause we've kind of tiptoed around it, but what are the basics of that method, Doug? Well, how about we just paint a picture Let's do it. An example of it, and then we'll break it down, okay? Let's do it. So my bird dog goes on point in the field, and so I'm going to walk up to her point. I love this picture, Doug. All right, good. good. <laughs> and, and 
you know, she's, you know, looking off to the east. So I'm going to look off to the east. And I walk up on her point, and the bird, the pheasant, flushes up. Okay, I take a step forward with my left foot. My gun's in the ready position, which means my butt's in my armpit. You're a right-handed shot. Yes. So you're stepping forward with your with my hips. left foot. Gotcha. And at the same time that I'm stepping forward, I start to mount the gun and swing it all in a fluid motion. Okay. My barrels start to swing through the tail of the bird, the body of the bird, clear to the head. And as soon as it gets to the head, I pull the trigger and I keep swinging my barrels right past that bird. This is all in a fluent motion. I've already practiced mounting my gun. So when I pull the trigger, it's hitting my cheek. It's in line with my eyes. All this happens in one smooth, fluent motion, okay? I do not lead the bird. Leading's crap. But I technically did lead the bird and shot way in front of the bird. And the reason why is because when I swing my barrels, they catch up to that pheasant. They swing through and past that pheasant. My barrels are swinging faster than that pheasant's going, okay? But I automatically swing the, swung them to, the, to overtake the bird. That's the automatic lead that is so deadly accurate. Okay, that's instinctive wing shoot. Now, if I'd ride that bird out for a while with my gun, I just slowed my barrels down to the speed of that darn pheasant, and I'm going to shoot behind it. So then i got to try to yank it in front of it and figure out how many inches I'm going to lead that bird. And I have to laugh every time I hear somebody say, oh, I led that thing about six inches. Are you going to tell me you knew what six inches was at 30 yards? Are you kidding me? Yeah. And so it's a very fluent motion that your brain calculates. And I give an example in my book of a quarterback that can, you know, nail their wide receiver at 40 yards when he's running 20 miles an hour and hit him perfectly. Yeah. Okay. He didn't lead him. He didn't say, well, I think I'm going to throw about clear down at the five-yard line and hope to God, you know, he gets there. No, it's totally autotelic. It happened automatically in one smooth, fast motion. And your brain calculates all this and does it. Now, if that bird's flying slower and I overtake the bird, I'm automatically going to swing, swing slower and overtake him in a slower fashion. And so I let him for the proper speed that that bird is flying. And this is all the Churchill method, and he really talks about proper footwork, um, you know, properly, you know, mounting the gun. You know, you know how important form is to golfers. Yep. It's important in every sport. Same thing here. Absolutely. So you can't just practice. you got to have perfect practice. So what you do, it's just deadly. Yeah. Very, uh, very well and astutely put, Doug. And to take it a little bit further and add a little bit of clarification for anybody out there that didn't follow that, although I thought it was a it was a very good picture that you painted. But when you talk about, you know, you say lead is crap and we're not leading the bird, what and you can, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. What you're really meaning is that, as you said, the brain is calculating the lead. The brain is calculating all this stuff. So you talk about, you know, in order to talk about it in an intelligent manner, you have to lay out these steps in that your foot goes towards the bird, your barrels start moving and they swing faster. But the key element here is that these thoughts are not consciously running through your mind in that moment. And that's where the instinctive portion of the method, you know, the title of the method comes into play because you practice this, you practice your mount and with 
time and repetition, this stuff becomes automatic. You talk about the quarterback. You know, when he hits a guy, a receiver in stride at 40 yards, that wasn't the first time he threw a football. He's thrown a football. <laughs> he's thrown a football no, he a, a lot. He got some muscle memory. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about that. But I, you know, I apologize. No, 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 no. I, correct, but, no. You know, I get passionate about it, and I just heard so much stuff over the years. And I really want to see people, you know, learn to do it the right way and use their instincts. And um, I talk about how to get muscle memory in my book by continuously mounting. Yep you know, your gun until your muscles start to burn. And so you learn this muscle memory. And, and I think, you know, I talk about it. I started writing a you know, second book and I give a hunting trip with the best shot I ever been with. And it really stuck out in my mind because I really picked his brain. I couldn't believe the way this kid could shoot. And he, he said the most important thing was for him was to be able to intensely focus. So I've been working on that for years. And the more focused I am on that bird, and I can see that bird in great detail. And I could literally see that, you know, red patch above the eye on a rooster pheasant and stuff. That's where I end up hitting that bird. Yep. And, and uh, you know, I was trying to explain that you really are leading the bird, but you didn't calculate it, and you let things happen naturally. And the instinctive method, figure out the speed and when your brain stops and thinks about all of it and tries to do it right, you end up aiming the shotgun instead of pointing it, and you'll end up shooting behind the bird. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned the focus and the eyesight because that's where I was ultimately going with that. And I, you know, when I backtracked a little bit, just because I, I think this stuff is so important for people to take in. If you want to be a better shooter and you want to have more success in the field, this what we're talking about is really, really important to understand and be able to know, learn, practice, and implement. And that lead is calculated by your brain. Your brain uses the data that is taken in by your eyes. Your eyes being yes. your eyes being that that focus on the bird staring at the at the bird. Your eyes are taking in all of the information that your brain is processing, and then your brain tells your body what to do. I mean, that feedback loop is the critical element to all of this. Absolutely. And um, I've kind of got some little methods when I take out and help some people. And, you know, I'm going to love hopefully to get to take some kids out shooting and shoot all, let them shoot some of my guns that are in the book. And this is the method I teach them. And I've seen it work so successfully and you get them to where they're not even thinking about it that gun just comes up automatically and they mount it and they just focus on the bird and uh, the success rate is instantly better and it makes you more versatile too to like i said i mean crossing shots rising shots incoming shots all these birds of different sizes you know flying at different speeds you know let your eyes calculate that that's the best computer in the world is your brain it really simplifies things too. You know, I, I, I mentioned to you that I had gone and, and shot with a, with an instructor around here locally that some of my friends have gone to and I'm going to go shoot with him again on Sunday. But, but that's, that's his big thing. I mean, he, the method that he teaches is essentially this, and he really stresses the importance of intense focus on the target. So if we're out there shooting clays, it's lock your eyes on that target, bring the gun to your cheek and shoot it. And that's that's about that's about what he will continue to repeat over and over again. If I miss five, six in a row, he'll tell me to put the gun down. He'll pull a clay and say, point at it, point at it with your finger. Now, when you point at it with your finger, 
do you have to calculate where your finger rises up to touch the target? No, it's automatic. You've been doing it since you were a baby. And so essentially that gun and the side-by-side in particular that I will, I'll throw in there because that's what we're talking about. It's an extension of your pointer finger and you're pointing at the target that your eyes are focused on. You pull the trigger. If the gun fits and shoots where you point, good things will happen. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why you kind of led up to this, talking about everything so perfectly, is having a fit gun and one that's, you know, comfortable, the right weight and, you know, size for you, then you're not going to think about your gun. Yeah. You're just going to look at that target and you don't look at the rib. You don't look at any of these other things. The gun just literally hits your cheek and you're focused on that target. And that's where your shot's going to go. And that's why you want a very comfortable, perfect fitting gun. And you don't want anything working against you. And you got to practice the technique. And I start practicing about a week. Um, I talked about it in my book, mounting my gun, swinging it through the lines where the you know the ceiling meets the wall. Yep, yep. In my in my, in my family room, firing off snap caps. Yep. And making sure I'm following through, and I just keep that gun barrel moving. And believe it or not, that's about the only way I practice now. I very seldom go out and shoot clays anymore. I haven't for two years. Um, Yes, I advise, you know, shooting clays and taking all these steps, but uh, once you learn the method sure. and you've got the muscle memory and it's installed in you, it's it's unbelievable, you know. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're getting close here, Doug, but I did say, I can't not ask you about this because it was one of the things I had, I can literally say I had never heard of the 2-inch 12-gauge before reading your book. And I've, I've become a little bit more familiar with it now, number one, from reading your book, and now I've sensed, you know, maybe it's one of those things where people talk about the effect where you buy a certain type of vehicle and then you see them all over the road, right? So, so I I read it in your book and then I I go on Upland Journal. It's an online forum, great forum. I go on there all the time, and sure enough, there was a thread the other day about a two inch twelve bore, and so I was reading that and and had to smile a little bit. And I went on Guns International and I looked at a few because I I you know again I just hadn't heard of it, but. Let's let's just spend a minute or two on this. Tell people about, and there's some pictures in the book, tell people about the 2-inch 12-gauge, the gun that you have, what makes them so special and so unique. Well, you know, I'm kind of a gun fanatic. and I mean, that's what I talk about, you know, trigger pulls on the gun, how important that is. Yeah. I go over box locks and side locks and all this neat stuff. Well, uh, we talked about square loads and stuff, and I think it's such a neat invention because... The English, I guess it was actually about in the late 1920s when the first ones were being made. And many makers jumped on board for a while. It was very popular about the mid-1930s. The English started making a 2-inch 12-bore. They'd already made small bores, of course, and uh, the Americans too, because there was a need for lighter guns um, in the uplands. And so the English was very smart. They just said, you know, these small bores are just crippling birds they don't put out as good of a pattern but 12 gauges are too heavy you know what are we going to do so what they did is they take a 20 gauge frame which is one inch between the center of the firing pins and they put 12 gauge barrels on a 20 gauge frame and they take the barrels they strike them down real nice and thin the shells don't produce much pressure you can have thinner walls um actually i think the standard was 19 thousandths of an inch believe it or not and um, the chambers are only two inches long. I mean, that's where the thickest, heaviest steel is, of course. So they yep. build a gun much, much lighter. They'd scale down the whole action, lighten the stock. Well, this was, these were handmade guns. 
So they were incredibly well balanced and very lightweight, but they would shoot a little short two-inch cartridge that only held seven, eight ounces of shot. Okay. So we've been we've been talking about this short shot string. Okay. Yeah. That's a twenty-gauge load going down a twelve-gauge bore. So man, the shot strings were incredibly short. Your shot wasn't getting damaged. You put incredible patterns out there. And unlike a small bore that you know you get in a real small bore like a twenty-eight gauge, you really can't go much larger than seven and a half shot, or the patterns are horrible. This twelve gauge you could. Sure. Um, and so of course they're still only effective to about thirty-five yards because you only got seven eight ounces of shot. It's a matter of density. But within that range, it's like a pizza pan coming at you. All your shot arrives at the same time. Um, beautiful patterns. The shot's in great shape, so it contains tons of energy. But yet your dead gum gun's five and a half pounds. My little two-inch 12 bar only weighs five pounds even. So then you might say, well, the gun's just too whippy and too light. Well, the fact that this is a handmade you know, English gun, the balance is actually pretty incredible. Uh, I've never had a gun that light that handles this beautifully. So now, of course, it's, just, it's hard on me because I ride the struggle bus. Do I take my 28-gauge woodcock <laughs> or do I take my 2-inch 12 bore? <laughs> yeah. So it's just incredible how light the gun is, the ballistics. Um, how long are the barrels on yours? Mine's 26. Okay. It has a Churchill rib. So when you're using the siding plane, it's almost like you're planing down a set of 28-inch barrels because that wonderful Churchill rib, which is a whole other subject that I like. Yeah. Um, so it makes one of the neatest little woodcock and grouse guns. They're hard, there's hardly any recoil. You can readily get ammunition for it from, you know, like RST. Sure. And, and so the Americans aren't going to do that, of course, because it'd be very expensive to produce one. And, you know, the bigger, more powerful, you know, Americans, it isn't going to fly. So they never made one. And I think they're just a neat, neat little novelty that, I enjoy in the uplands. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I'm new to this vintage gun game, and so I'm learning a lot as I go here, but but I had never heard of them, and I imagine others are in the same predicament. But I will say that you've got some, you've got some good pictures, and people can probably go find them online or pictures of guns similar, but you can really see how sleek and slim down the action and the receiver look to the barrels. I mean, it's just it looks like a gun that you just want to pick up. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of amazing because you've got a little bit of gun in your hands because they are 12-gauge barrels. Right. And they're struck down. It's nice and thin. They actually really feel more like a 16-gauge, of course. But the action is mine's smaller than most 20-gauges. It's so sleek through the wrist, and it's just – it's really it's, it's really a neat little gun. Yeah, very cool. Well, Doug, I mean, clearly you – all of this stuff strikes your fancy. You've spent a lot of time reading, researching it. And I think the conversation tonight has been really interesting because of your knowledge level. And, and I really appreciate that. And I know the listeners will too. So let's leave listeners with a little bit of a tidbit. Now, if they want to learn more about side-by-sides, obviously our first recommendation here is, is to go buy your book. Now, where can they do that? Um, they can go to uh, Doug Stewart author.com which is my website they can buy it right off the website with paypal for the old old timers like me they can send me a check (laughs) i will personally sign and autograph the book to you and i love people they can click on my facebook from the bottom of there 
and they can contact me. We can talk about things. I'm hoping I get to hunt with some people. You know, I really want to get, you know, more young people involved and, yeah. you know, bird, bird hunting. And I like, you know, um, like enthusiasts. And I'm just a, a laid back guy. I mean, I work with people all the time as a living, being a trainer. So I want to help people. People's opinion of my book matters to me. That's why I apologized for a little bit of my grammar. And, um, you know, I want to be involved with the, with the public on this. Yeah. And get more people involved. I'm going to be up at the grouse camp with your friend Jimmy Havel. I'm going to be up there, you know, October 4th, Woodcock and Grouse hunting. I'm going to do a book signing for people. I'm going to take a couple of people out in the woods. You know, if they want to shoot one of my parkers, they're going to bring several parkers. You know, this is just how I'm going to roll. Heck yeah, man. I do think. I suggest my book for everybody. I really think that somebody... It's got something for everybody in there, and you can learn from it. Yeah, yeah, I will. I will second that, Doug, because like I said, I I have read it. Thank you again for sending me a copy of it. And you know, I you mentioned the you mentioned a few of the the typos. Man, I can't tell you how many books I pick up and and I see a typo, and it's you think and these are you know these are these are straight off like legitimate publishing company books, and and you're like, how the heck does that typo slip through? And I don't, I've, I've never published a book. I don't know what the process is, but it happens. And what I can tell you is that I got a chapter, two chapters into your book. And I thought, you know what, this guy, this guy's a hunter. This guy is a gun lover. And I appreciated the information. And I think, I think anybody that reads the book and looks at it, honestly, they will think the same thing. So I, I encourage people to check it out. And I think it is, like I said it before, I think it's a great starting point. If somebody's listening to this that says, you know, I have thought quite a, very much about side by sides, but I'm I'm interested. We piqued their we piqued their interest. We struck their curiosity on this podcast, Doug. I hope we did. I think your book's a great place to start. With that said, any other words of wisdom, tips that you would give for maybe a new young hunter or maybe somebody that just wants to get into side by side shotguns? Where to start? Maybe they're looking for their first gun. Any other any other words of wisdom for those people? Well, I do believe they will get some basic knowledge about chokes, cartridges, everything from my book, okay? Yep. And I do think they need to get out there and um, hunt with somebody that has a passion for it, be it a family member or friend. Sure. You know, hopefully they can have a little bird dog, you know, get their self a little. They don't need to spend a bunch of money. They can get a little Fox Sterling worth. It's a great gun. Absolutely. And I'm not against, you know, people, I love these, but if you got to use an, a different bird gun, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, get out and enjoy the uplands because this is a privilege that we have in our country that they don't have in a lot of other countries. It's a very rich tradition. You're going to see wildlife. You're going to get out of this busy, crazy city and learn how much stress you're living with. Bring yourself back to God and nature. Love the people that are, you know, around you and get out there and just enjoy nature more than anything, okay? And I think this is a wonderful thing that you're doing with the podcast. I mean, you're just a straight-up great guy, and it's really getting the word out there on every aspect of Appland bird hunting, really. I appreciate so I really, that, Doug. I appreciate you very much. This means a lot to me. And, 
you know, I won't let anybody, you know, down that contacts. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, listeners will have heard it by listening to this interview, but definitely reach out to Doug, go to his website, DougStewartAuthor.com. Doug, I'm going to be hanging around Pine Ridge Grouse Camp a little bit this fall. I, I don't know if I'm going to be out there that weekend, but I really want to meet you. So I might have to, uh, I might have to rearrange my schedule a little bit because I think that'd be fun. Regardless, we'll keep in touch. I wish you the best of luck in your hunting season this fall. I hope we get to hook up at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Have a great night, buddy. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. We'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast as they help bring you, the listener, each and every episode. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, and Gumleaf Boots. Please check out their websites, check out their operations, and support them as they continue to support the Project Upland podcast. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, videos, articles, Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. Check it out there at projectupland.com. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any and or all of these things. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, hit that little subscribe button, share the podcast post, and please reach out to us, send us your feedback, your thoughts on the show, and your suggestions for future episodes. I'm an Upland hunter. I love to hear from other Upland hunters. Tell me your story. Reach out to me. Use the contact form at the Project Upland website or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.